Let's give the Lord praise this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, that is a truth that we need just throughout our lives in different ways, Lord, that we know but we always need. But you are always a strong tower, a mighty fortress. You are faithful and steadfast and you're trustworthy. For whatever we struggle with, for whatever life throws at us, Father, we are not strong enough on our own. Uh, the castles that we build fall apart so much quicker than we want to ever really admit. And Lord, we need you more than we want to say. I am so grateful for your love, for your steadfastness, for your compassion, for your grace that you consistently give to each and every one of us. Father, would you help us to run to you, that strong tower, in our times of need. We love you, Lord, and we all said, amen, amen. Isn't it encouraging uh, just to see uh, a bunch of college students who want to not just sing, but to lead other people in worshiping the Lord? Can we give these guys just another round of applause and say thank you? Man, it's exciting. Uh, listen, it's good to see you, church. Glad to be with you today. Uh, I was out last week. Got a, like many of you guys might have been out on spring break, uh, and was really happy for Chris Culver to be here preaching for us. If you were not here last week and didn't catch his sermon, uh, don't miss it. Get online and listen to it. It was powerful to me, and so you don't want to miss that. Uh, but look, uh, glad to be back, and we are preparing for Easter week. It's a huge week in the life of the church. Uh, you might have found one of these on your chairs. So go ahead and look at that real quick. It's got a lot of information there. Uh, some logistics, because some things are going to be different this week than they normally are. We have a lot of different services happening this week. Uh, that's going to start on Thursday with Monday Thursday. We're going to have a special service right here, 7 p.m., be about an hour long, uh, but it's a communion service. Uh, we're gonna be able to come in here and you'll be able to, to not just receive at your chair, but we'll actually come forward to different tables where you, you or you and your family uh, can be served. Communion is a great way of really kind of preparing our hearts as we move into really the heart of the Easter weekend. Uh, it's, a, it's a moving time, it's an exciting time. Uh, there will be preschool available for birth through pre-K, uh, but other than that, it'll be kind of a family-style service and we'll all be in here 7 p.m. for that. Friday night is Good Friday. Uh, and if you've never been to our Good Friday service, this is the most unique service we do all year. It is my favorite service that we do all year. It's very different from the things we normally do. Uh, a very contemplative service. Uh, we'll enter in silence and actually leave in silence. Uh, there's gonna be a, a preschool actually through second grade, just to the more serious nature uh, of the service. Uh, but everybody else, we will be in here. It is a, it's a powerful time. We're really center on the cross on the day that Jesus was crucified. Why that is so impactful for each of us. Uh, I would really encourage you to come if you've never been before. Uh, like I said, my favorite service of the year. And then finally, Easter Sunday. Uh, and Easter is going to be a big day. We're expecting uh, huge crowds as we normally have those. Uh, but we're gonna change our schedule. Instead of having two services, there's gonna be three services. And they are slightly different times. So our three services are gonna be at 8, 9.30, and 11. All right, got that? 8, 9.30, and 11, and now we're all gonna say it together on the count of three, ready? Our services are gonna be at 8, 9.30, and 11. You need to remember that, right? This is why we put it on a piece of paper. We're gonna send it to you on a text, and we're gonna put it on the website, and we put it on our banner out front because our normal services are at 9 and 10.45. So if you show up at those times, you will be appropriately early for your Easter service, all right? 
You show up at 9, you're going to wait till 9 for 30. And if you show up at 1045, you'll have to wait till 11, but you'll, at least you'll get the seat that you want. All right, so that's going to be here. Look, if you can come to the 8 or the uh, 11 o'clock services, uh, the 930 is most likely going to be our most full service. We will have overflow services happening across the street in our student worship room uh, at 930 and 11. Uh, also, we will have kids worship going on at 9.30 and 11, but not at 8. All right, so at 8 o'clock, everybody is in here. 9.30 and 11, overflow will be available as well as kids worship up on the second floor. So a lot going on, a lot of details. I wanna make sure you have all that. And we need help with this. Uh, right there in the back, there's a QR code. If you can help for one of those services, we do need your help. Uh, we're not doing community groups next week. Uh, and so you could come to a service and serve a different service. We need help on the parking team, with ushers, with connections team with all different kinds of things. If you can help in any way during one of those services, maybe with our kids, hey, please just scan that QR code. We'll get in touch with you. Let us know what you can do, but we really do need your help. Sign up for that if you could. And obviously I hope you're gonna be praying about this week. We're gonna talk about that a little bit more in the meat of the sermon, uh, but I'm very excited about Easter week. But now grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to John chapter 12, verse 12. John chapter 12, verse 12 is where we're gonna be on Palm Sunday today. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chapter 12, verse 12, is where we're going to be in just a second. While you guys are turning there, I wonder if you've ever heard a, a cliche or a maxim or a truth before, and the more you thought about it, you began to realize it just wasn't all that true. Has this ever happened to you before? I was thinking about one of those this week. I, I wonder if you've ever heard of this cliche where it says, the best things in life are free. You ever heard that? The best things in life are free. I've been thinking about this week, and I think I'm ready to declare that this is demonstrably false. This is not true. It is really not. It is not true that the best things in life are free. Now, look, I know what they meant when they said that. They're saying, well, Adam, the best things in life don't cost money. And that's right, right? You don't have to pay to watch a sunset, right? There are certain things in life that are not money-costing things. However, the best things in life absolutely will cost you. Think about the things that you love most or most proud of or you enjoyed the most in your life, and odds are it costs you a lot to have that experience. Students, if you want to graduate high school and just say, hey, I want to grow up, I want to have great grades, I want to get to a, a great school, you're going to have to not just, you're going to have to work at that. You may not have to pay for that, but you're going to have to work. You're going to have to study. You're going to have to, to work hard and, and make good grades. It takes time and investment and effort if you actually want to achieve that goal. It might not cost you money, but it's going to cost you in time. Do you, do you want to be the best at your sport? You want to be the best in your job? Uh, well, guess what? That may not cost you money, but it's going to cost you practice. You're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to invest. You're going to spend a lot of time and energy if you really want to be great in your sport or great in your profession. You want a great marriage? Well, look, that, that costs you. Great marriages don't just happen. It, you, there's an investment of time and energy. Sometimes you have to have hard conversations. There's sacrifices to be made. You can have a great marriage, but it's not free. It is going to cost you. You're going to have to invest if you want to experience that. You want to be a great parent? You want our kids to grow up and be great kids? That actually does cost quite a bit of money. Um, so that one, that one, it holds true for that one. Um, but look, it's not just money, right? I mean, you've got to invest time and money uh, or time and effort and energy. I mean, it's lots of conversations. Parenting is this never-ending task. And so look, the greatest things in life, the things that you enjoy, the things that you are, are proud of, it, it, it does cost you. 
And so I would like to propose an amendment to the cliche. Can we just change the cliche? Uh, I would like to, instead of saying the best things in life are free, can we instead say this? The best things in life are totally worth it. The best things in life are totally worth it. They cost you, but it's worth the investment you gotta put in. And that's something I think we all need to contemplate as we begin walking into Easter week. of What is really worth it to us? Uh, we find ourselves in John chapter 12 this morning. Uh, if you hear a couple weeks ago, we talked about this unexpected path to Easter. Jesus was turning his gaze now to Jerusalem. Uh, and today marks Palm Sunday. Uh, today is the day we really get on the time scale of Jesus. What we're celebrating today is the Sunday before Easter Sunday. Friday is Good Friday. That's the day of the crucifixion. Thursday is Maundy Thursday. That's the day where they had the Lord's Supper. Uh, But Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter Sunday. And we know what happened during that week in the life of Jesus. And on the Sunday prior to his resurrection, Jesus was entering into Jerusalem. Now, he's not going to do this by himself. He's going to do this with an entourage, if you will. There's a huge crowd that has come with him and another crowd that is meeting him. Uh, and there's a huge festival going on in, or in Jerusalem. So people from all over the nation are converging in Jerusalem for this massive national festival. And Jesus is now entering the city. And so look what happens. John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, for behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Let's pause right there. So here we have what in Bible terms we would call the triumphal entry. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and there's this whole crowd of people who are giving him praise. And again, you'll notice really two crowds. You've got a crowd of people who has been with him. Some of them had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. They were there and they saw it and they've been traveling with him ever since. Others are disciples who've been traveling with him maybe for years at this point. But remember, Jesus traveled around the whole region and all of them are now converging in Jerusalem. So as he's getting there, there are other people who saw Jesus do miracles or had heard of what Jesus had done or had heard about his teachings. And so there's a crowd coming in from outside of the city. And then as word gets to the city, they're all like, oh, Jesus is coming. And they all kind of converge there together. And it becomes this, this huge crowd now is now entering the city. You might have noticed they're, they're, they're waving palm fronds, which is why we call it Palm Sunday, by the way. And why are they doing that? Well, the palm was a national symbol for Israel. So this is in some sense a nationalist message. They're saying, listen, we believe Jesus is gonna be our new king. He's gonna kick out the Romans. He can be the Messiah. They're waving these palm fronds. And as they do so, they're saying, Hosanna. Right? That's an interesting word there. And we've seen it in different worship songs. They say, what does that mean? Well, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word uh, that literally means Lord save now. Lord, save now. 
But I don't know if that's exactly what everybody was meaning at the time. This was more of a general term of, of praise. Uh, it comes from Psalm 118, and they would actually use this psalm at other festivals as well. They would say Hosanna in the highest about lots of different things. It's kind of like when we say hallelujah. You ever said hallelujah before? Hallelujah. You ever said that, right? You can say that if you want, all right? Hallelujah is a Hebrew word, and it means praise the Lord. Hallel, praise, Lou, and then Yah, that's Yahweh. Okay, hallelujah, it's praise the Lord. But when you and I say hallelujah, we're not really translating in our head. We're saying praise the Lord. You're just saying a praise term. Well, that's Hosanna. They might have been saying Lord save now, but really they're just saying Hosanna. They're just, they're saying a term of praise for the Lord. But the most interesting thing here is that Jesus is riding on a donkey. Now, it says he found a donkey here, but if you read the other synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they'll tell a longer story that Jesus actually goes out and gets this donkey. He sends his disciples ahead of time and says, get this very specific donkey that nobody's ever ridden on. Go get him and bring him back to me. So Jesus is not just looking around to find something to ride on. I don't know what Jesus typically rode when he was going from town to town, and I don't think he's ever done this coming into Jerusalem. He's not tired he is choosing this donkey on purpose and said, I'm gonna ride into Jerusalem during the feast on a donkey. Why would he do that? Well, he tells us in verse 15, it says, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. All right, this is a quotation from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter nine. Now put this all together. Jesus is self-consciously fulfilling a prophecy. Sometimes you fulfill a prophecy and you don't get to, to, to choose that, right? You don't get to choose when you're born. You don't get to choose how people will treat you. You don't get to choose what people say about you. But this is a prophecy that Jesus is going to choose to fulfill. He knows this prophecy. The other people may or may not have remembered it, but Jesus does and says, I choose to ride into Jerusalem on this donkey. So I actually wanna look at this prophecy and show you what it says. Because remember, Jesus is pointing us here on purpose. He says, I want you to see what I am doing. I am telegraphing here who I am and what I'm going to do. This is Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Do you see why Jesus might be pointing back to this prophecy? of what he's telling us about himself? Even if they don't get it at the time, Jesus is telling something about his kingship. There's four things I think we need to recognize here. Number one, uh, he's humble. He's humble. He comes riding in on a donkey. That's a choice. He does not come riding into Jerusalem on a war horse. That's what the Romans would have done. 
If you're a Roman, you never come in on a donkey that would look weak. You come in on a massive war horse with a chariot behind you and then all the prisoners you've captured and then the army behind them. You want to telegraph your power. Jesus absolutely could do this, but he doesn't have any of that, nor does he want it. He says, no, give me a donkey, a a foal. I want to sit on this young donkey as I come in. Why? Because he's humble. His is a different kind of power. He has way more power than that that massive Roman general, but he's not going to be overbearing. He's not coming to overpower everyone. He says, no, I come humble, like a shepherd, like a servant. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. He says, I'm humble, riding on the foal of a donkey. Here's the second thing. I've come to bring peace. He comes to bring peace. He says that I'm going to be the kind of leader who brings peace to everyone. I'm going to put away strife. Did you notice beforehand? He says, I'm going to break the battle bow. I'm going to put away the the war chariots and all the arms. I want to end strife in humanity. I want to bring peace between people. Jesus brings peace. But then here's the third thing. His peace will be for all the nations. Look at this in verse 10. Look there in the middle. And I will speak peace to the nations, plural, Now, the Israelites walking here would have said, well, yeah, this is great, bring peace, but we just kind of assume you'll do that like everybody else. You'll be the new David. You'll you'll kick out the Romans. You can get rid of all those battle bows after you've used them a ton. You'll get rid of those chariots after you've used them a ton. But but you're doing that for us, right? And Jesus says, no, I'm not just here for the Jews. This is here for the nations. I want to bring peace not just to one people group. I want to bring peace to all people groups. This isn't for one type of person. This is for all people. Jesus, who is humble, wants to bring peace to the nations. And then here's the fourth thing and the most interesting. Look at verse 11. He's going to do this because of the blood of his covenant. He will do this by the blood of my covenant with you. Now that is phrasing that Jews would not have flinched at. This makes total sense to them. They live in a sacrificial system. Even now in Jerusalem, there would be all kinds of sacrifices during Passover. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Furthermore, if you wanted to make a covenant with somebody, a pact, you didn't just shake hands, there would be a covenant. And typically there's a sacrifice. The Israelites would have thought about the Abrahamic covenant where God went to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. And through you, all of the nations on the earth are gonna be blessed. Animals were sacrificed and their their halves were put on either side and God and Abraham walked through those pieces to say, so be it done to me if I break this covenant. That was a covenant God made with his chosen race, his people, and says, I'm going to bless you. But he does this by the blood of his covenant. Now what Jesus is doing here is so much more than what the people in that crowd really understood. They would have been happy just for a national leader, a new David. But Jesus is doing something greater. He's actually not just fulfilling this prophecy. He's fulfilling it in a greater way than has ever been done before. This is what we would call a type. Uh, You may have studied typology before. But you see this in scripture in different places where a prophecy can get fulfilled multiple times. There's a prophecy that is fulfilled in the current context But then later on, that same prophecy will be fulfilled in an even greater way. 
different context, but an even greater fulfillment. And sometimes there's two, three, and four fulfillings of the exact same prophecy. An example of that would be this. Think back to Moses uh, and the Israelites when they got set free from Egypt. Back in Exodus, the Israelites are in physical bondage. They're in slavery. They cannot set themselves free. And so God sends a deliverer in Moses. Moses is sent by God to come to the people and says, let my people go. And there's gonna be plagues until finally God's gonna say, hey, my wrath is gonna come on everybody. My wrath is gonna come and kill all of the firstborn. But look, if you will make a sacrifice of a spotless lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, I will pass over you and that wrath will not fall on you. And so all the Israelites do that. They, they, they have a sacrifice of a lamb and the, the wrath of God passes over them. It hits the Egyptians. And, and this causes so much pain. They kick out the Israelites and the Israelites go, they get tracked by a sea. God splits the sea wide open. They go through the waters until God leads them to a physical promised land. They have been given freedom. They're set free. So God sends a deliverer to an enslaved people. His wrath passes over them. They go through the waters into a physical promised land. Think about what Jesus is about to do. Jesus comes to a people who are not physically enslaved. They are spiritually enslaved. You and I are enslaved to sin and death. And we can't fix that. We can't get ourselves out of it. We can't fix our own sin and we can't get or keep ourselves from death. We are enslaved by sin and death. But God sends a deliverer in his son, Jesus. And Jesus comes and says, hey, listen, the wrath of God is gonna come sit on you. The wrath of God is gonna come and destroy you. But if there's a sacrifice of a perfect spotless lamb, that lamb is me, by the way, if, if I, a perfect spotless lamb, am sacrificed and my blood covers you, then my wrath will pass over you. You won't go into death. And then guess what? I'm gonna take you through the waters of baptism into not a physical promised land, but an eternal life, a Sabbath rest. You get fullness of life in me forever. You are spiritually enslaved, but God sends a deliverer that through the blood of his covenant, you are set free into an eternal life with him. It's the same prophecy with a greater fulfillment. And when does Jesus show up to remind the people of this? Which festival does he show up during? It's Passover. The festival of the year where they're all reminded of this very same thing. Jesus says, by the blood of my covenant, I will set you free. Look what he says in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. This is on Thursday. This is Maundy Thursday when he he's, uh, has the last supper with his disciples. Listen to what he says. It says, and likewise the cup, after they had eaten, say, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He says, I am the humble king who is coming to bring peace to everybody, but it is gonna come as I sacrifice myself to create a new covenant with anyone who would put their faith in me, Jesus comes to bring that to us. When he sits on that donkey and rides in, he is telegraphing all of this. But not everybody got that. Look at verse 16. Is that his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So not even the disciples really caught this at the time. They saw the donkey, but they didn't really catch this whole thing 
that Jesus was coming to be this greater deliverer. And I think we can safely say that the crowd didn't get this either. The crowd that was there singing Hosanna, please do not assume that all of these people just have this amazing faith in Jesus because that's not exactly true. Some of them do, obviously, but some of them don't. It's a mixed bag in this crowd. There's probably people who love Jesus and follow after him. And there's probably people who are just curious, right? They're just like, I don't know, I heard about Jesus. Let's go see who this person is. But, but look, if you looked at that crowd that day, it would look like everybody got it. It would look like everybody was in. It was bright, it was joyous. There's hosannas, there's palm fronds. I mean, it's kind of like a party. Everybody's singing and they're excited. The more I thought about this, this Palm Sunday celebration looks a lot like our Easter Sunday celebration. The Palm Sunday celebration looks a lot like our Easter Sunday celebration. It's interesting, if you come next week and if you've ever come to an Easter service, you know it's packed. Easter Sunday's fun, right? It's huge, right? It's a big Sunday, everybody shows up. It's big, it's bright, it's airy. And we have one of the biggest, if not the biggest crowd on Indy Sunday through the year, we have at Easter. It's always between Easter and Christmas Eve, they fight, right? But one of those is gonna win, should be the biggest Sunday of the year. Now you may ask why, why is Easter such a big Sunday out of the year? Well, a couple reasons. Number one, it's one of the only times during the year that everybody in the church shows up at once, right? Y'all may not know this, but all y'all don't come every week, okay? You should, but you don't, right? So some of you come three times a month, some of you come twice a month, and some of you only come once a month. Stop it, all right? You know who you are. Uh, Look, you don't, but guess what? Easter Sunday is that one Sunday where everybody says, but I'm coming that one, right? And so on Easter, you actually get a better picture of what our church actually looks like because everybody's there on one Sunday. So you get elevated numbers. Here's the second thing. You get tons of visitors, right? You get a lot of people who just come in. Some people, it's just a tradition. They may not go to church any other time of the year, but like, I'll come Easter. And they show up, but maybe they get drugged here by parents. Grandma says she won't feed me. Let's go to church. Let's go, right? And so you go, right? You go to kind of see what's going on. Or people might be genuinely curious, they might just say, look, I, I don't know. I, I hadn't gone to Easter in a while. Let me just go see what this thing is about. I love that. You got to imagine that there were people who were genuinely curious, even though they didn't believe in Jesus, they were genuinely curious as to what was going on at that Asbury revival in Kentucky. Even if they didn't believe in Jesus, you know a bunch of people, well, I at least want to know what's going on in there. What, is it for real? They're curious. We'll have a lot of curious people next week. And they're gonna get a chance to hear the gospel. Praise God. I would love it for people to come to church once a year rather than no times a year. And so I'm thrilled they're coming. I hope they hear the gospel. I hope they also put their faith in Christ. But we're gonna have this big, massive crowd on Sunday morning. But the weirdest thing happens the week after Sunday morning. You know what happens the week after Sunday, Easter Sunday? The crowds go right back to normal. Or it actually gets lower than normal. Isn't that interesting? I watch this every single year. And now maybe you know why. Because all the people who only come once a month said, well, I already did it. I'm not coming next week, right? And they're not coming the next week. And they all skip that next week. And so you actually get a lower number than you normally do. And then it kind of evens out as you go after that. But why? Why would you have a big crowd one week and then a normalish or even smaller crowd the next week? That's a huge shift. And it's almost like the shift you see in this crowd between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Because this huge crowd doesn't show up on Good Friday. This crowd is going to be a whole lot smaller. It's going to get drowned out by a different crowd. And this crowd won't be shouting Hosanna. They're going to be shouting crucify, 
crucify, crucify. What happened? What happens in five days? Well, a couple things. Number one, let's not assume these are the same crowd. The same people singing Hosanna are not the same people singing crucify. These are not the same crowds. There's over a million people showing up in Jerusalem at this time. There's enough people for two crowds. But this one also, you gotta ask, where are they? Where'd they go? How come they aren't flooding the streets? How are they running, running to Jesus' defense? How come they're not going toe-to-toe with this other crowd? How come they're so silent? Because now there's a cost involved. You see, it just doesn't cost you all that much to show up for Palm Sunday. It costs you a little bit of time and a palm front. That's it. You show up, hey. That's it. A little bit of time. That's it. But you want to show up on Good Friday? Oh, that'll cost you. For you to stand with Jesus when you got an angry mob yelling for his death, that'll cost your relationships. They might kick you out of the synagogue. Might lose some respect. You could lose your job. Let's get be real honest. You might lose your life. Angry mobs aren't known to be reasonable, especially when they're already calling for murder. You see, there's a lot of people who might have said, it's easy to show up on Palm Sunday. I don't know if I want to show up here. You see, the cost is just too high. The greatest things in life, listen, that's just not worth it to me. And so you don't pay the price. There's one person, though, who pays the price that day. One person who says, it's absolutely worth it to me. And that's our Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about what Jesus does because he doesn't change between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Jesus is still here. He is still on the same trajectory. Why? Because he says, it's worth it to me. Think about the cost that he pays. First off, he's humble. Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. This is mind-boggling. Jesus Christ was there at the creation of the universe. Everything in the world was made by him, for him, and through him. In him, all things hold together. He, he, he is there at the beginning of all things. He, he is used to being, to being hearing not just Hosanna, but here, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the whole earth is full of his glory. And that God is gonna be on a dusty road on a colt, a donkey. That is unbelievable humility on the part of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I will absolutely pay this price. Do you know Why? Because it's worth it. Secondly, he's coming to bring peace. Not just peace between people, but peace between God and man. Jesus is very acquainted with the wrath of God. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right after the triumphal entry, the first thing Jesus does is he goes in the temple and he whips people out of there. He is very acquainted with the wrath of God. He feels it and he recognizes that that wrath will be on man. And what he does here, he comes and pushes us out of the way that the wrath of God may fall on him. He knows the fullness of that wrath and to bring peace between God and man. He says, bring all that wrath on me. I will pay that price because it's worth it. And he does this to all nations. Let the magnitude of this sink in for just a second. 
Jesus is going to die for our sins, but not just the sins of, of Peter, James, and John, and the Marys, and, and just a, a few people in his ragtag group. He says, no, I'm, I'm going to die for all of the people, not just Israel and his chosen people, not just Israel, but for all of the people living at that time. And not just then, but for all of the other humans who have ever lived and whoever will live, all of their sins and all of the wrath that goes with them, all of that for all time is going to come crushing down upon him. And he says, I will take this. I will pay that cost because it's worth it. And he says, and I will do this by the blood of my covenant. It'll cost me my very life. Not an uncomfortable situation. It will cost me my very life and I will let my very blood spill out and my life be destroyed because it's worth it. Why? Why is it worth it? What he's already told us. In John chapter three, Back when he was talking to Nicodemus, we find this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved you that he gave his only son. If you just put your faith in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know what's worth it? You are. You're worth it to him. When Jesus looks at that price tag, he says, you're worth it. I love you that much. I care for you that much. To have you with me in eternity, it's worth it to go through all of this and pay all of that cost. You are worth it to me. No matter who you are or what you've done or how other people have treated you or what you've done, how long you've been away or how many doubts you've had or what you've said to other people or how you've treated them or how you've lied, the Lord says, I will forgive everything. You're still worth it to me. That is greater than anything this world could ever give you. That is greater than any achievement we go and chase with our sex and our power and our money and our comfort and our, 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 our influence and vanity. Whatever it is, we try to find a life in nothing compares to the greatness of God saying, you are worth it. He offers that to you. But the question we now have to ask is, is he worth it? This is what Jesus is willing to pay for us, and so now the question comes back as we begin this Easter journey, is he worth it? Skip down to verse 20. Look what happens here. This doesn't happen immediately after this, uh, but it's not like a week later. It's very quick on the heels of Jesus entering in Jerusalem. Look what it says in John 12, verse 20. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Let's pause right there. All right, so in Jerusalem at this time are some non-Jews. These may have been proselytes, people who converted to the Jewish religion, but we don't really know, and it doesn't say that there. These are most likely just non-Jewish people who have heard about Jesus, and now they're saying, hey, we too want to know if he's for us. Philip and Andrew, by the way, they're the only two disciples with Greek names instead of Hebrew names, which is probably why they went to them. They're Jewish, but they got Greek names. So they said, well, that's probably our only in. Let's go ask them. And so I asked those guys to come to Jesus and said, hey, hey, we want to see Jesus. And look how Jesus will respond. Verse 23. And Jesus answered him, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. This is like a trigger. As soon as these Greeks come to seek Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, it's not just the Jews finally looking for me. Now it's the world looking for me. He says, my time has come. I will now go to the cross. But notice, he does not just talk about himself. He also talks about us. He says, if you want to serve me, you got to follow me. You don't just come and praise me. You don't just come and acknowledge me. No, you got to walk my path. If you want to follow me or serve me, you got to follow me, which means just like I'm going to lose my life that I might take it up again and enjoy it for eternal life, you too must walk this path, which means this. You try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, that's when you're going to get eternal life. You see, to follow Jesus, there's a cost. Won't cost you a penny, but it'll cost you everything. It means you got to lay down your life. We don't just show up for a week, a year. We don't say nice things about Jesus. It means that we have to give up on this vain and false idea that I'm in control, that I get to determine right and wrong, that I make up all the rules, that my dreams and desires are always correct. I have to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, all I have done is run from you. I am captured by my own sin. I deserve the death that is coming to me and I cannot save myself. Jesus, I'm willing to lay all of that down that I might follow after you. This is what it means to walk the path. This is why the crowd drops precipitously because not everybody wants to do that. But if you're willing to lay down your life, to give up everything, we saw it in baptism just a few minutes ago. Let's say my old life has died. I want to be born again, brand new. I hold nothing back. If you give up everything, you can follow Jesus. You say, why? Why would I do that? Why would I suffer the loss of all things? Because if you lose your life, you actually gain it. Do you know what you gain? You gain him. You see, when I walk with Jesus, Jesus doesn't stop on Good Friday. He goes through to Easter Sunday. And when Jesus rises from the grave, everything he has, he now gives to me. Because Jesus is alive, I will be alive forever. Because I'm in him. Because Jesus lives in eternal light and glory. I will live in eternal light and glory because I am in him. Because he has all of this fullness and he has given me forgiveness and love and acceptance and no one can snatch me out of his hand. I live in confidence. I live in peace. There's no more fear because Jesus is alive and sitting at the right hand of God. So will I. You can suffer the loss of all things, but you gain everything. He's worth it. He's worth it. And if we walk the path with him all this week, you will find that he's worth it. So two quick questions as we close up. Number one, just like the Greeks, can I just ask you, do you want to see Jesus? Do you want to see Jesus? That is a different question from, would you like to come to the Easter service? That's different. Because who's going to say no to that, right? Easter's fun. And Easter doesn't cost you all that much. You can come to the Easter service. We don't charge to come in. Come on, it'll be great. We're planning a great service. It's going to be great. 
you might say, do I want to have dinner after Easter with my family? Yes. All right, that'll cost you a little bit more. But it's really good, man. Grandma cooks well. You can go have that. That'll be awesome. You say, do I want a new Easter outfit? You can have that. That's great. It'll cost you a little bit more, but you could use it multiple times. It'll be great. You can have that. Do you want to eat Easter candy? Well, if the answer is, do I want to eat peeps? The answer is yes, right? Because that's the greatest Easter candy there is and the cheapest of them all. If you do not agree with that, get right with the Lord. <laughs> you can keep all those Cadbury eggs to yourselves. Those things are way too expensive and terrible. I don't know what you're doing. Well, it looks like it's not going to cost you all that much. Go enjoy it. Do you want to go to see have Easter? So easy. Different. Do you want to see Jesus? Because if you want to see Jesus, that's going to cost you. To say, I want to lay down my life and my schedule and my stuff, and I want to follow after the Lord. Even if it means the loss of all things, I will gain all things in him. He is worth it. I don't just want to come to a service. Man, I want to walk with you. I want to see Jesus. Which means, are you willing to walk his path? If we want to see him, am I willing to walk the path with Jesus? That's why I'm going to invite you to all of our services this week. We do this on purpose, by the way. Monday, Thursday, we gather together so that we can actually be together and we can experience that Lord's Supper. You get that moment where you recognize God gives us to you. His invitation is to you. His body and blood there for you. This new covenant he makes with you. You have a moment to come personally to the table and to partake and to prepare your heart. Good Friday. You get to come and look, it's not the most comfortable service. It's quiet. It's not ruckus like it is this morning. It is hard to recognize and to sit and to contemplate the fact it is our sins that built the cross. It's my sin that built that cross. And on Good Friday, I have to recognize the reason there's a crucifixion is me. And it's you too. You're not getting away with it. You're not fooling anybody. And there's a price tag for what you have done. And Jesus Christ pays it for us with his own life. It is good and right for us to stop and to contemplate, even though it's uncomfortable, the things that we have done that have demanded Jesus' death and his love for you means he paid it. We come on Good Friday and we contemplate this. But this leads us to the joy of Resurrection Sunday where Jesus rises from the grave and we don't just commemorate a story. We don't just talk about a, an historical event. No, we realize what Jesus did then, he did in me. And because he's alive, I get to be alive. Why don't we walk the path of Jesus this week, put our faith in him, lose our lives that we might save it. There's a tragedy in Palm Sunday. And the tragedy is this. There are people in the crowd on Palm Sunday who were so close to him. I mean, so close. They saw Jesus. They gave him the proper praise. They called him king of Israel. They waved a palm front. They were that close. And they're nowhere to be found on Resurrection Sunday. Five days ago, seven days ago, they were there but they weren't willing to pay that final cost into the eternal life that Jesus offers to us. Don't miss it. Don't stop short. Don't just show up for the service. Follow him that he might give you eternal life.
So do this for a Bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. We're going to close in a quick hymn. But look, I just want you to think about those questions for just a moment. Do you want to see him? Not just be aware of him or be around him, but, but do you want to see him? There's a price tag involved. It doesn't cost you a penny. It costs you a lot more. It costs you everything. But he's worth it. And he's already paid an even greater price because he said you are worth it. What if you choose now from wherever you are, however far away you feel, to say, I don't want to stop here on Palm Sunday. I want to go with him all the way. Through the cross, to the resurrection. I'm ready to, to follow him wherever. If he loves me that much, put your faith in him, maybe for the first time, but don't miss it. Heavenly Father, thank you. I thank you for this invitation to know you, to follow after you, to experience you. God, just for the path that you have walked and the price you have paid, I I will just declare for all of us, we are not worth it. We're not. We have done nothing to earn that kind of love. We we can't repay you for anything. And so your love for us is just a grace that we do not deserve. But we are so thankful to receive. And God, we give you praise and glory. Would you, would you walk with us this particular Easter to show us even more of your sacrifice and even more of your love? And God, bring others who have never put their faith in you that they too might join us and not just see a service, but they would see you. God, show us that the things we give up are nothing in comparison to the life you give to us. Thank you, Father, for what you give. We're with you. Lead us on, and we will follow. In your name we pray.